The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So I want to talk a little bit more about this quality of concentration or composure or gathering of the mind. And I'm going to start actually with a a little story. So when Siddhartha Gautama, which is the name that we used for the man who became the Buddha, when he was getting close to awakening, he had been striving very hard on the path. Okay? He'd been starving himself and staying out in the elements and injuring his body through various kinds of strenuous practice, really, you know, because he wanted to awaken, but it wasn't working. And he realized that this was not leading to wisdom, in a sense. This was not leading to what we heard about earlier of aging, illness, and death. That was his interest in doing the practice, was to find some release from those things. And his uh, self-mortification practices were not working. And so, kind of in desperation, he just opened his mind... I don't know if it was desperation, but he opened his mind, realizing that this was not working. And and a memory came forth. And what he recalled was an incident from his childhood that was an experience of concentration. So he remembered when he was about seven years old, sitting quietly under a tree and watching the spring plowing happening, when it's sort of the first breaking of the ground. And at that moment... He remembered how his mind was. His mind was attentive in kind of a holistic way. He was seeing the beautiful spring scenery, feeling relaxed and safe and content. He had some awareness of his body. He was present. He wasn't thinking about yesterday or tomorrow or judging what was happening. Basically, all of the factors, all the qualities that I talked about earlier were there in his mind um, at this moment. And his mind actually entered a state of concentration. It said that he entered what's called the first jhana uh, through that experience. And as an adult, though, he was remembering this. He kind of, so see, memory's not all bad on the path. It's not always a hindrance when something that, something like that arises. And he thought to himself, could this be the path toward awakening? And he had this intuition, yes, it is. You know, all this striving and bearing down and hurting myself and pushing is not working. And this sense of ease and of, you know, presence, attentiveness, but also relaxation in a sense, ease, um, this, this could be the path. And that was when, you know, that, that was when he sat down under the Bodhi tree, decided to cultivate this middle way between indulgence in thinking and sense pleasures and hindrances and pushing all of that away and saying, bearing down and saying, I'm just going to, you know, hurt myself until it works. <laughs> right? So he says, somewhere between these, there's a path. And that was, you know, that worked. That was what led to his awakening. So this is a story, but we can learn things from it that apply in our practice. I mean, it's meant to be useful to us 
So we too may have ways in our meditation or our life where we're striving too hard, if you will, where we're caught in that, you know, what was described earlier as, what can I work on? What am I missing? What do I need to do more of? And a little bit, you know, not quite enough of the, where's the ease? Where's the contentment? Where are things working? Um, You know, can we hold both of those in a sense and be present for all of it? So we can think of this process as either letting go of things that are painful, so all that striving and pushing and self-criticism, that's pretty painful actually. What if we were to let go of those things that are harmful and painful? Or we can think of it as moving toward something that's easeful and beautiful. You know, depending how your mind goes, you might prefer one or the other of these, but Gill says that moving away from suffering and moving toward freedom are just the front and back of a hand. You know, whichever side works for you. And maybe it's different ones at different times. So this this ease that, that we keep talking about in concentration, in a sense you can ask, you know, why why is concentration blissful or easeful? It's because we've let go of these painful hindrances and we've let go of also the relatively grosser, if you will, desires and pleasures of the ordinary sense world. So we've let go of donuts and complaints about my boss, (laughs) which have, you know, their appeal, (laughs) but um, we found something that's a sort of a more wholesome sense of joy, if you will. And the Buddha is very clear uh, that this kind of pleasure, the pleasure that comes from the ease of a still mind and body, he says it's not to be feared. I think that's an interesting way of saying it. You know, why does he say it that way? Um, I think there's kind of two aspects. One is that we can uh, literally fear it from a place that's kind of like the... um, uh, the Puritan mind <laughs> that says, if it feels good, it's probably bad. <laughs> you know, I have this element in my mind, you know, kind of a sense of, well, you know, if I just really let go into this deep well of ease that I'm feeling in my body, that's going to like disconnect me from the world, or I'm going to get attached to that, or anything like that is surely going to, you know, I'm going to lose my job because that's all I'm going to do. Or, you know, there can actually be fears like this. Um, so there's, I think that's one side. And he says it's not to be feared. It's not going to, you know, this is something that's actually very nourishing for the mind and the body and actually helps connect you to all the path factors when it's done in a wise way. Uh, there has to be that wisdom there also. And then I think maybe the second aspect of fear is that some people are literally afraid of that state and they don't, you know, they're not thinking of stories about why this is dangerous, but they're actually f- afraid of who they are when they've let go of these hindrances. They're so identified with their pleasures, their ill will, their energy level, their doubt, that if that's not there, they don't know who they are. Like we had a, com- a beautiful teaching earlier from, you know, from one of you. What is, who am I if that's not there? And a mind that settles into the deep ease of concentration, very quiet. If you're identified with 
who you are by your thoughts and they're gone? Who are you when you're not thinking about who you are? So there can actually be fear arising when concentration starts to arise. And so I hope that this instruction from the Buddha is also to say that don't worry if you start settling in and feeling that. You can, you can let that nourish you. So I'm actually going to read a couple of descriptions, images, similes for types of, for what concentration can feel like in the body. It's very much a bodily kind of feeling as well as the mind. You may not have heard these. And if, I I recommend listening to them with kind of a meditative mind, not as a sense of this needs to be achieved. It's achieved by letting go. So, just as if a skilled bathman or bathman's apprentice would pour bath powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water so that the ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, would nevertheless not drip. Even so, the meditator permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. There is nothing of her entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of seclusion." Just like a lake with spring water welling up from within, having no inflow from the east, west, north, or south, and with the skies supplying abundant showers time and again, so that the cool fount of water welling up from within the lake would permeate and pervade, suffuse and fill it with cool waters, there being no part of the lake unpervaded by the cool waters. Even so, the meditator permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of concentration, There is nothing of her entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Just as in a lotus pond, some of the lotuses born and growing in the water stay immersed in the water and flourish without standing up out of the water so that they are permeated and pervaded, suffused and filled with cool water from their roots to their tips, and nothing of those lotuses would be unpervaded by cool water Even so, the meditator permeates this very body with the pleasure divested of rapture. There is nothing of her entire body unpervaded with pleasure divested of rapture. Just as if a person were sitting covered from head to foot with a white cloth so that there would be no part of her body to which the white cloth did not extend, even so, the meditator sits permeating the body with a pure, bright awareness. There is nothing of her entire body unpervaded by pure, bright awareness. And as she remains thus heedful, ardent, and resolute, any memories and resolves related to the outside life are abandoned, and with their abandoning, her mind gathers and settles inwardly, grows unified and centered. So, can one get attached to that kind of pleasure? Well, the mind can get attached to anything, but that's a terrible reason not to move toward it in whatever way is possible. And it's not that we sit and experience lotuses in the water every day, but I, I think it's important to hear these and let them speak to some part of your heart. So the question, maybe the most important question is, what is that what is that for? You know, is that the purpose? 
Is that the aim? And the answer is no, actually. This kind of feeling in the body and the mind is not the aim of practice. It is the tool that we hone. Why? In order to see. So the concentrated mind is used to see. It's like having a telescope that you're looking through, say, and you're standing there and you're holding the telescope up. And it's pretty good. You can see pretty well. But, you know, holding it in your hand is not that good um, over the long term, especially because you get tired. So then you get a tripod and you put the telescope on the tripod. That is way better, right? You can even just feel it when I say the word tripod. Ah, And so the tripod is the concentration, okay? And you can see... You know, the telescope and the seeing, that's the mindfulness and the awareness uh, that we're cultivating through practice. So that can be there, but you just see a lot better (laughs) when there's the stability of the concentration. And this is true at any level. You know, it's true whether you've just sat down for 10 minutes and have managed to stop having your heart beating rapidly. (laughs) That's great. And it applies at a level where you, you're able to be mindful for five whole breaths in a row, which is actually pretty good. Um, that's great. And it's great at the level where your mind is settled and maybe you're in these lotus images. That's also great. Any level um, of having that stability helps you to see better. And what do we see? We see where the difficulties are arising. You know, we see how the mind works, how it creates suffering, how it can be free of that. We can see the moment when the mind starts to move toward identifying with something and or collapsing around something or getting distracted. You can actually see the mind starting to do that. (laughs) And that's a beautiful moment. You know, that's a great thing to see um, how that can operate. And we can see the mind letting go. You know, we can see the mind that's a little bit stuck and we can feel a little release. Or we can be present for the time when the mind is spacious and clear, as was mentioned earlier. Do we notice those moments when actually there aren't hindrances? We are not hindered 24-7. It would be impossible to live that way. So, you know... And then we can see also, over time, we're going to see the process. Uh, The more we pay attention to the mind and it's all its little games, the more we see the process by which uh, it's possible to be free of those dances that the mind is trying to do all the time. And these are the Four Noble Truths. So understanding what it's like to be caught, understanding how that comes about, understanding how it is released and what it's like when it's not there, and understanding that process of going from a mind that is more caught to a mind that is less caught, or a mind that is even not caught. So, maybe that's why concentration is at the end of these so-called steps of the path, is that it's the point where we can actually see... (laughs) in some way. And what is seeing? Well, right view. Remember that? That was the very first month. So, in my mind at least, this is a spiral path. And to get here to step eight, you're now poised to go back to step one. (laughs) 
in a deeper way, I think, in a deeper way. And um, it's all about the seeing, and the steps of the path help prepare us to get to the point where we can see the next thing. And then there's going to be some learning from that, and maybe we'll change our intention, and maybe we'll change our behavior, and maybe that's going to help us settle a little bit more, because we're a little bit more in harmony, and then we can see something else. And this is the process that we're all, all doing together here, every one of us. So I'll stop there and give you a chance again to explore some of this in small groups. Why don't we again get into, no, let's get into groups of three this time. Groups of three. Could you guys arrange yourself and then I'll give you something to talk about. times when you have experienced a calm and collected mind, what sensations and feelings were present? And what value do these have to you? So the times when you were at ease and your mind was somehow calm and collected, could be in a daily activity, could be on the cushion, what sensations and feelings were present in both your mind and body? And what value do these have to you? And why doesn't each person speak uninterrupted for two minutes and I'll let you know and then you'll have time to talk after that. Okay, so go ahead and start with the first person. Okay, and now if you haven't already, please, you can just talk among yourselves for a few minutes if everyone's had a chance to share. Thanks. You can stay there. Actually, there's one more question. (laughs) Okay, so the second question is expand, if you haven't already, if it's correct, uh, expand to consider the whole of the Eightfold Path as you have practiced with it this year. So what are some nuggets of value that you have found through your practice of the last eight months that you could summarize to your friends on the path? In two minutes? In two minutes. <laughs> And I think all of you can just talk freely at this time. So whatever you'd like to share. It might be interesting to go around each person sharing one thing and then going around multiple times. Okay, so now's the time when we can comment in the larger group. Your nuggets were only shared with the other people in your group. And it would be great if anybody wanted to share something more widely, something you feel needs to be said. Um, and Jim and I didn't get to hear any of them. Yeah. I think that in the discussion, it's um, and also in your descriptions, it's just a reminder of how fantastic it feels when you get concentrated. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that um, there is uh, a sense of 
all is well, all is exactly as it should be, and even those words have no way to touch upon the feeling Hmm. in that sense, that sense of unity in wholesomeness and um, connection to the rest of the world is just really an incredible feeling. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. So responding to the last thing you asked us about these past eight months um, and putting it together, what was just said, and my own experience with this piece of concentration um, and retreat practice, um, um, uh, with concentration you can see how it all fits together, all mm-hmm. these other pieces. You can see how things build, how you create conditions, the conditions of themselves um, uh, create opportunity, uh, circumstances that arise and connect one thing to another. Um, and it becomes clear. It seems sort of random. It just seems like things are happening to me um, and uh, when you mean in regular everyday life? Every day, walking yeah. around, you know, I I know I've you know I, I'm trying to practice right speech. So instead of um, uh, sounding annoyed at the cash register, I act politely and um, not for them or just to yeah. see what happens. And you know, there's lots of acts like that 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 I perform. Um, so the actions are right, but you know, inside there's all the chatter and all the stuff. Um, but when the mind gets concentrated, uh, you can see the effects of all those little pieces of conditions that you've mm. created and how each thing fits together and builds one upon another and how, um, it, uh, it makes each thing makes other things happen. That's beautiful. What I, what I want to pick up and, and what I really like about what you said is that you gave uh, examples. You were, you were talking about everyday life and actually seeing how those things can fit together also in that, you know, we sometimes, I'll go back to the earlier point, is that we sometimes think concentration is this thing on the cushion, and it is, and it happens out in the world too when we're continuously mindful, you know, when we're paying attention. It's not random the way the things happen. Not that we can expect that we're going to get every single thing and that, um, you know, the Buddha said that uh, trying to understand how karma works will drive a person crazy. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, but it's exactly, it's not uh, uncaused. What is happening is not uncaused. And we can start to see the little thing, the little ways that we're contributing, actually, to how things are arising in our lives or how we're responding, and that is um, that's part of having a more gathered mind, which is a natural thing that arises from doing mindfulness practice. So every one of us has the potential and have probably had some of the experience of that. Thanks, Arthur. Somewhere around um, the time we were doing right effort, I was examining my states and thoughts, and I had—I guess it's a sort of a analytical thing—but w- one of the things that occurred to me in insight was I realized that my brain actually has no sense of time, 
and that it can't, right? It only measures a few inches across because I realized that I could have thoughts just as clear as was yesterday, something maybe I thought when I was, you know, five. Right. <laughs> so that really is just an illusion. It can't, right? Time is measured by the distance the light travels. And so, and I went around with this for a long time. It was a very powerful thought. And then on Thursday here, I'm visiting her from out of town, and I went to see uh, Andrea Castillo, and she said, because I still had this idea of my brain not having a sense of time, and she said that time is measured with the heart. <laughs> and because I'd already had this idea, and I was thinking about time, and then she planted that idea in there. <laughs> ah. It was very powerful, and I just could think of how when you measure, like, maybe a ball of yarn or a string, and how do you measure that usually? Because it's all wiggly, right? You touch every little part of it as you run along the string, maybe, mm. and you put it against a ruler. And that's how I felt like that continuity of mindfulness or measuring time with the heart, and I've been staying at this beautiful lighthouse. But anyway, I haven't ever been the same since. <laughs> wow. Well, that It'll is... possibly fade, but anyway. <laughs> well, thank you, actually. I mean, the, the sense of time is one thing that we start to examine through uh, composing the mind, actually. And so you're, um, and you've already made some very important discoveries, namely that it's not a fixed external thing that's ticking outside. It's something much more fluid and uh, also something that we participate in the creation of. So whether with our mind or our heart or anything else. So I hope this helps us. Actually, let me give one example. Gil says that sometimes when he feels like he's being really pressured with a lot of different things, he uh, meditates and then he has much more time. This is also a time when um, you can ask any other questions uh, about practice or anything else that's coming up. Well, particularly practice <laughs> um, on the cushion or in your life. Um, you know, because as you know, this is our last session here. Um, at least in this room, I'll talk a little bit about the day long in a moment. But this is also a time when we can we don't need to be restricted to just reporting from the last Q&A, the last uh, short discussion that we did. I wanted to go back to the touching on the fear mm. from concentration mm. because sometimes when I've gotten really concentrated, I sort of have this uh, the live sensation of non-self and it's really scary Mm. um so if you have any uh words around that for me you know like the that the sensation ceases what do you what do you call the lived sensation of non-self i think that's a lovely phrase and i want to understand better what you mean by that um would be when i no longer have a sense of any feeling of my body Mm. And that uh, whatever is there is uh, inseparated from anything else. So anything external or in- internal and me and not me, um, that there is no felt difference between the two. Hmm. Yeah, this is something that can arise through meditation, is this sense. And it changes, as you've pointed to, it changes our understanding of what our self is. Right? Um, I think that's maybe the thing to highlight from the way you've approached the topic is that 
maybe at some later time when you're feeling like some aspect of your body is clearly you, um, like let's say sometime later you have a pain and you're sure that it's all about your knee, uh, you can question that a little bit. It's not always true, is it? Or if um, we become identified with an emotion, my anger, my sadness, which is going to happen because we live here in the world and things trigger us, we can be a little less certain that that's all about that that's referring to me. Um, allow that, so allow that experience that you have sometimes to thin out the uh, cords that tie your body and yourself and your mind together. Maybe question at some later time what exactly is you, if you're sure that something is. Does that make sense? Thank you. That's one one value of an experience like that. Yeah, appreciate that. But you brought up the topic on saying that you wanted to hear more about the fear of that. Do you experience fear with that? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's okay if you're um, just able to be aware of that at the time. Um, the there's no remedy specifically except to hold it along with everything else that's there. So to have the awareness, the understanding that my body isn't here or something else seems to be missing and there's fear, just keep adding and on, and, 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 it's all here. Um, And then just sit, just rest in that. Kind of a this too kind of practice? Mm -hmm. This too or all of this, something like that. Yeah. Excellent, thank you. Here's one. Oh. So I th- so I think when the uh, Buddha was uh, summarizing his teaching, he basically said, "Suffering and the end of suffering," mm-hmm. something to that effect. Um, so when one is sitting in concentration and the hindrances cease to operate. Or, I, that is to say, they quit distracting us. So they're not hindering you. They're anymore. not hindering. Mm-hmm. They're not hindering. Then um, I feel as though I'm no longer suffering. You know that mm-hmm. suffering has disappeared. Mm. I don't think that's exactly what the Buddha meant when he said the end of suffering. Could could you talk about that some? Especially since this is. Insight Meditation Center, not Samadhi Meditation Center. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> so, um, I think we could say that there are many different kinds of liberation. And we're going to experience a lot of them before we're the Buddha or an Arahant or some such. And so um, another way of saying the Four Noble Truths is um, if you cling, you will suffer. If you let go of that clinging, that suffering will end. And so what this says to me uh, is that 
a lot of our understanding comes from seeing a particular clinging and then a release of that particular clinging. And it's perfectly valid to say that the suffering that was caused by that clinging is gone when that clinging releases. And that is liberation from that particular kind of clinging. It's totally valid liberation. Uh, so, you know, when the mind is has maybe let go of the grosser elements of the five hindrances to the point where we don't feel like we're caught up in sense, desire, ill will, we're pretty present, our energy level is pretty balanced and we're not doubting, you know, that is definitely, um, that's definitely a kind of liberation from all those things that could have been happening or maybe were happening earlier. But at the same time, there may be a sense that I did that. There may be a sense that um, there may be some concept, I'm sitting in meditation and I don't have hindrances. Well, those are concepts there. And so there's still something in the mind that is operating. Um, It's not necessarily causing gross suffering, but part of the sensitivity that we develop on practice is that things that we used didn't used to think we're suffering, we start to notice are actually suffering, right? Have you noticed this through developing mindfulness? Is it one of the first things that happens is you realize how much suffering there is in your mind? And people come to their mentors or their teachers and they say, I don't like mindfulness. I see all the awful things. <laughs> that, but um, this is actually good. <laughs> this is very normal, is that before we were what? ignoring that. We had ignorance about the fact that certain things in our life were causing suffering. And then we saw that, and then or then we could change our behavior at that point. And there's a sort of a process of letting go of things that when we notice that they're causing suffering. And I think a lot of times along the way, we can get to a point where we feel like we're relatively not suffering. It's totally fine to enjoy that. That's what we just heard earlier, lovely wisdom Notice when you're feeling at ease. Don't worry. Mindfulness is eventually going to show you where the suffering is in that state. And so I don't think we need to worry too much about whether, you know, if you have the thought, this is it, I've reached final liberation, you should worry about that. (laughs) This is it, I'm done now, I'm an arahant. Okay, that is um, probably something to think about. But you've highlighted, you know, an important point, which is that there's a lot of suffering, end of suffering, and then there's more suffering, and then we see how to end that. This is the path. This is the path. And it unfolds by itself with our faith, our effort, our mindfulness. And we could add our concentration and our wisdom to put all the faculties in there. But basically, you know, we bring... We bring ourselves to this and it shows us the way out. Yeah. Thank you. I think I just wanted to say, um, just for the whole 12 months or 8 months, it's it's nice to feel that life isn't a big catastrophe. I just feel like that, you know, that was kind of the culmination somewhere along the, you know, along the path. I just kind of let go of that and 
that kind of how easy it was to do that and at the same time how it's just a constant practice but in, and an intention, but it, you, you know, you can kind of just lightly do it. It doesn't have to be this big, heavy struggle to do it, but it sure just makes life a lot easier mm. <laughs> when you're not worrying about what's going to happen two years down the line or, you know, the next three weeks down the line even. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Sylvia Borstein's book is called It's Easier Than You Think. <laughs> yeah, meditation, it's not what you think. <laughs> Another good one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And there's one more. One of the, thing, one of the things that... Um, struck me as I listened to Gil's talk last night was this um, kind of um, uh, comparison of concentration to floating. Hmm. And because I've always focused on the effort component of concentration to do something, him bringing up this um, allowing the the water to support you mm-hmm. in that. I'm a swimmer, so it, it, it really hit me as... Uh, a wonderful analogy, and I, um, I'm still trying to get my head around the allowing component, or just letting things, uh, the world support you. Do you have any um, insights in this area? That's mm. kind of vague question. Well, I'm going to pick up on your language and say that you're trying to get your head around it, <laughs> and that may uh, that may not be the Maybe we can get the heart around it, or, yeah, or, um, to me, the image of floating, I think he uses the floating, the creatures that are swimming in the ocean, and then they turn on their back and float. To me, that has a sense of um, something that I can't do, right? And so there's um, a feeling that, well, let me, let me, um, let me say that the things that arise in the body and the mind during sitting and that we often get caught up in, um, all of that is the mind getting smaller and grabbing onto something. Um, and the, for me, a sense of floating is sometimes about creating a very large container in which body sensations can come and go, feelings can come and go, thoughts especially can come and go. And the sense of... Um, Floating is being willing for the mind to be bigger than anything that's arising in it. And, I mean, there's different ways you could interpret this, but I'm feeling like that's arising for me as I'm talking with you, and I wonder if it would be helpful to try to, um, not try exactly, (laughs) but allow the mind to um, be a lot larger than it is, like a giant pasture in which everything can just be. And... Um, what would that feel like to have a mind like that that was so big, like the sky, that it couldn't be affected by anything that arose in it? That can be one way, actually, to think about or approach concentration, which often has this sense of narrowing or focusing or efforting. And I think it's a nice... It's not like it's the only relevant image, 
but it's one that can help counteract the forces of the mind that want to narrow down and feel like concentration means excluding a bunch of stuff. What if concentration were that you included everything and a huge amount of space besides that so that there was um, anything that could be a thing was, was just a small part of the spaciousness of the mind. That's another way to approach it. Does that resonate at all? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we're nearing the end. This is our last session here. But for those, especially for those of you who are greed types and can't quite let go, we have one more. <laughs> um, for, I'm joking. For, one of the, for those who can make it, there is a day long uh, together on June 20th at the Insight Retreat Center, which is in Santa Cruz. And I'm, I know you've been told about this before, but I'm just reminding you, it would be really great uh, if you could be there. Uh, and, and if you can't, it's totally fine. Uh, we tried to you know, close up, bring some closure today. But uh, if you'd like, that will be kind of a recap and kind of a deepening and uh, just one more chance to be together also. And also to experience a whole day of practice if you haven't done that. I know some of you have, but maybe some of you haven't. So June 20th, um, one thing to know about that is that we don't have a lot of parking at IRC. We can have more, we have more space for more people than we could have cars in the parking lot. So please carpool if you can. Those of you who are here today, afterwards you may want to talk with each other and see if you could get at least a couple people in your car. Uh, it's just a lot better. It makes it much more easeful, shall we say. That's our theme for today. It's a lot more easeful for the car situation. And also, um, along the lines of speaking with each other uh, and connecting with each other here, of course, that's what we've been doing the whole eight months. But, you know, the program doesn't have to end. I hope we've learned that we're all walking the path together. And if you've met people here, this is a nice time to exchange email addresses or phone numbers or something if you'd like to continue on um, with other folks that you know here we encourage the formation of Kalyanamita groups wise friendship is a great foundation on the path and just somebody else who would understand when you want to talk about wise intention <laughs> you know it's great you have somebody that you could call so yeah so thank you. Thank you for your practice over these last eight months. It's so beautiful to see people getting on the path, getting interested, really diving in and engaging in whatever way was meaningful for you. And if the parts that you hated and the parts that you loved and the discoveries you made, it's all part of it. It's all great. And it's such a support for everyone, not just yourself. You can't do this practice only for yourself. So oh, thank you for being here and for taking this time and developing your practice and may it bear wonderful, beautiful fruit for yourself and for the whole world. Thank you. So finally, let's just dedicate the merit of our time today and our time together and our time walking the path in this course to the benefit of all beings knowing that the way we have undertaken the practice and any insights that we've gained, any ways that we have changed our behavior or developed in our practice, all of those can be shared with the people in our lives, with the people we meet on the street, with people we work with, our families, and everyone in some way. May all beings 
benefit from the Eightfold Path. May all beings benefit from our practice. May all beings be happy. May all beings be peaceful. And may all beings everywhere be free. <laughs>